Welcome back to your next stop. I'm the host, Juliette Hahn. I say it every time, but oh my gosh, this is an extra special because I have two guests. It is the Anxiety Sisters, Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachek. They met at UPenn in the 80s, the late 80s. And wait until you guys hear how their journey and how they created the Anxiety Sisters. They have a podcast called The Spin Cycle. They have written books. They have a community of almost a quarter million people. They do speaking engagements, workshops. It is something that you don't want to miss. We really connected on this episode. We laughed. That's more importantly, we laughed about how they came about creating the Anxiety Sisters. And if you guys want to check them out, again, podcast is The Spin Cycle. They are on IG and LinkedIn at The Anxiety Sisters. Their website is anxietysisters.com. This is one that you don't want to miss. You might say, okay, I don't suffer from anxiety, but you don't know who does and who needs to hear this episode. Because again, they brought such a conversation and how it came about and how they have suffered in the past, but what they're doing now to really bring the light to talk about anxiety and different things to help and have like-minded people that can understand. Again, you do not want to miss the Anxiety Sisters, Abby Greenberg, Maggie Sarachek, and um, the Anxiety Sisters. This episode is brought to you by Together Women Rise. Together Women Rise is dedicated to ensuring that every woman and girl has the opportunity to live freely, pursue her dreams, and reach her full potential. They are a powerful community of women and allies engaged in learning, giving, and community building. Please visit Together Women Rise at togetherwomenrise.org to learn more and to join them. Have you ever been listening to your favorite podcast and that moment comes up and you think, oh my gosh, I need to share it? Well, now you can with Picked Cherries. What I love about Picked Cherries so much is that when I'm listening to my favorite podcast and that moment comes up that I want to share, I can take a snippet, which is called a Picked Cherry, and I can send that to my friends and family so they can get involved in the podcast that I love. It's almost like sending an IG or a TikTok available now, iOS and Android. If you're not picking cherries, are you really listening to podcasts? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Your Next Stop. I'm Juliet Hahn, and I say it every single time, but I am a real, this is a special, special, special episode. I have two guests, Maggie Sarachek. Did I say that right? Perfect. You said it perfectly. Awesome. And Abby, and Abby Greenberg. Greenberg. They are the they Anxiety, are the anxiety sisters. sisters. And, and I want to actually, actually, before I introduce you guys, guys and more, I'm going to have people so they can check you guys out. Because if anyone's like me, they're like, wait, I want to know about this. You can find them on all of the socials. IG and LinkedIn is The Anxiety Sisters. Their website is anxietysisters.com. They're also on Facebook and you can also check these ladies out. They met at UPenn in the 80s and you guys are in for a very special treat. So welcome Maggie and Abby. How are you? Oh, we're so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, we're thrilled to be here. Now, I always tell my guests where I'm, where, where we met and I, well, I want to say, do we, where did we meet? I actually don't remember. I think we were set up by our publicist. Oh, you're right. That's right. Your publicist <laughs> reached out to me. Yes. <laughs> 
So it's, it's funny. Cause I'm like, wait, I don't think it was LinkedIn. Cause now I'm like, like, I always can kind of go back and think. And then it was like, yes, yeah, so your publicist reached out to me, which I love. I've been getting those lately and getting some really, really good stories. But when you and I, the three of us actually jumped on, cause what I usually do is, you know, if a publicist or someone reaches out to me, just so my guests can kind of understand the whole vetting process, I just don't say yes. Cause I don't know. Right. I could look up and be like, okay, they seem good, but I need to, we need to see if our energies match and what we could have talked like for hours. Right. Yes, definitely. We, we actually did. I think it was like, oh my gosh, we got to go. Because UPenn is right kind of in the neck of the woods where I grew up in, in Jersey. And then you guys were with like, it just was became this whole fur, full circle conversation. And it was really, really amazing. So what I do on this podcast all the time is I want you guys to go back. So each, each of you can kind of give a little bit of history of where you grew up. You know, we already told them when you went to university, but then I know, you know, obviously you guys met at UPenn and then that is where kind of the anxiety sisters blossomed years later, but just give us a little history about, you know, your upbringing. I grew up in actually in Long. I was born in Queens and grew up mainly in Long Island actually entirely in Long Island, anxiety-wise, realize now that I was always an anxious child. Um, and I particularly had um, a lot of separation anxiety, um, particularly because I grew up with one parent who was fairly ill from the time I was really young, physically ill, not mentally ill, but um, was in and out of the hospital for long periods of time. So I think that really influence that whole piece of, and, and other things did as well, but I had separation anxiety, but there was no words for it. There was no vocabulary for what was going on. Um, and I just think I was a very anxious kid, but nobody picked up on it. Right. It was, it was just kind of the way things were. Yeah. That's right? the way it was, it was the 1970s. You know, it was like when you, you left home for the day, you know, you're six years old and you come back for dinner, you know, and, um, I had very attentive parents, but it wasn't something that was really looked at. And I think, it, well, you know, yeah, it probably was more like, oh, she's just a warrior, right? That's what they used to call yeah, it. Like, I, I wouldn't even say that they would call me a warrior because my worry was a little bit different, but it was more separation based, you know, and I had and I would get very sort of overwhelmed. Um, there was some ADHD in there. There was dyslexia like you. So there was like all these things <laughs> kind of blend into each other. Right. Well, and, and also with, with, you know, I, t we talk about this with other guests that, you know, come on and say, you know, they were dyslexic with that. You, you really do have some sort of anxiety because you don't know what's going to happen in school. You don't know where you're going to not understand something or where you're going to feel stupid or someone's going to, you know, figure you out. And so I feel like, you know, that with anyone that learns different, there's even, even if you're not, you know, kind of built as an, someone with anxiety, you're going to have some level of it because you're trying to navigate a world that, uh, you know, other people don't always fit into. So I, you know, appreciate you sharing that. Um, so a little bit more though, when you decided, okay, so obviously you were a good student. And this is what I also love when people don't understand dyslexia and ADHD, they always assume, okay, they weren't a good student. You know, some, I was not a good student, but not everyone is not. So how did you end up going to university of Pennsylvania and what did you major in? Well, I ended up majoring in philosophy, <laughs> very practical, but, um, <laughs> you know, for me, um, 
And dyslexia, as you know, there's so many different presentations of dyslexia. Um, And so people tend to think it's like there's one kind of dyslexia. Right. Spectrum. Right. But there's so many presentations of dyslexia. And for me, I was someone who didn't read at all till fourth grade, could not read at all. But of course, I was in school in the 1970s, and there wasn't quite so much like testing, like, can you do this? Like, if you were a quiet, good girl, like no one was saying anything. Um, but I think my my third grade teacher realized, like, at the end of the year <laughs> that I could not read and, you know, basically said for next year, we think she should be in special education, um, which was very different than also. Right, what it is now. And um, basically, my mom worked in the schools as a social worker and had a friend who was a reading teacher um, who instructed my mom on how to teach me to read because she realized I couldn't learn phonics like so many of us with dyslexia. Dyslexia. (laughs) Phonics is not helpful in any way. And um, my mom worked with me really hard. And then my fourth grade teacher understood stuff about reading. And she worked with me. And it was that year from the beginning to the end, I was sort of in the beginning in the lowest reading group, barely reading toward the end. I really had gotten the hang of it. I was really reading voraciously. Yeah. And you know what I love? Because that's again, and it's so important because people also don't, okay, they think, okay, you can't read, but so many people that, you know, are listening to this podcast, maybe have a situation where they think, oh, my child is so behind because they can't read, but look what you did in a year. And then again, I mean, you went to university of Pennsylvania. That's a very, you know, esteemed school. So it's one of those things that people need to realize that just because you learn different, just because you struggle, it needs to be switched. Like you said, phonics didn't do it. And my story started in third and fourth grade when I realized, you know, I I wasn't going to gifted and talented with the entire class. It was just me and another boy that had to go to special reading. Um, And it's those things. My son was the same way, but nowadays it's, you know, they pick up on it quicker. I mean, he was memorizing. So they actually didn't pick it up because he was memorizing books. He would come home to me and say, Hey mom, can you read this to me? Cause he would ask the teacher, Hey, what book am I going to be reading in the circle? So he can memorize it the night before. (laughs) God, how smart. It's funny. My son had a similar thing happen, but, um, he had an Orton Gillingham interventionist. And so it's a multi-sensory reading program. And, um, literally it was like he was testing in the bottom 1% for reading and then a little bit of intervention and he was in the top 99%, you know, the top 1%. It was like bottom to top. And, you know, so that the whole idea is that, that those kinds of intervention and that, and I always say it's similar from anxiety. It's like the, the, the more people pick something up and realize, okay, their brain just works in a different way. Mm -hmm. Often we can do an intervention that can really change the course of, of one's life. But I do agree with you that like dyslexia and ADHD and executive functioning, they're all, you know, those of us, they do lead to anxiety. That was my other piece, you know, definitely. I never knew what my homework was. Right. And I, you know, I remember, and then we're going to, you know, Abby, I, you know, want to dive into your, a little bit of your story, but no, because it's so true. I mean, I remember when my son came home one day and said, mom, I don't understand anything that's going on. And I said to him, oh yeah, I remember that. And it sucks. And I was like, and you're going to have many of those opportunities. Like, I mean, you're going to have many of those experiences where you're going to look around and be like, how is everyone writing down what the teacher just said? What they just said to me sounded like a completely different language. And I remember that so much. And that was one of the things that was really hard. And really early on, I realized 
wait, I don't, why don't I understand when everyone else just is like, I, w- I would look at my friend and be like, what do you, what, what are you writing? What well, I'm doing the assignment. I'm like, what? I don't understand. So I think that again, as you said, that's going to bring some level of anxiety, whether you even have an anxiety disorder or you're predispositioned for anxiety, you're going to have some sort of level of anxiety. Yeah, you so, don't work the way the rest of the world does. And I'm still like that with computers pretty much. So, you know, okay. that is a thing left over. I don't, I don't understand what the rest of the world understands. We just, we just learned different. Well, thank you for sharing that. And Abby, I would love for you to give us a little background of your upbringing and, you know, kind of where your journey took you to University of Pennsylvania. So I grew up in South Florida, uh, in a town called Hollywood. And, um, my first recollection of anxiety would be when I was about five years old. Whenever my family would be going somewhere in the car, I would run out to the garage before anybody else was even awake and I would tap all the tires. I had like a ritual going on, right? Tap the tires, then it would be a safe trip for the family. And it got to the point where I literally couldn't get in a car that I didn't tap the tires. So that was the beginning of my obsessive compulsive disorder, although I was not formally diagnosed until I was 46. Wow. So it was a lot of uh, a lot of suffering in between my first memories of obsessive obsessive compulsive behavior and when a, a very gifted psychiatrist finally said to me, you know, I don't think panic disorder is your main problem. Right. Well, and it's so interesting that you said that because when you said that, I was like, oh, that's obsessive compulsive. And I'm not a doctor, but it's just one of those things that you see, you know, when I've been around children, not my own, but other children in in family where, you know, they would have to tap things. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I would say the parent, oh, and they're like, oh, it's their obsessive compulsive. They have to touch five things before they can do things. And I always would think, wow, all right, you know what, that, that has to be exhausting. It, certainly as an adult, I found my obsessions and compulsions exhausting. I don't remember as a kid if I did, but I do remember that I kept it to myself. I was very quiet about it. I, um, I came from a family of high achievers, professionals, a lot of expectation on us. I mean, my father was a military guy and we had a very close and loving family, but there was a lot of expectation. So I didn't want to do anything that would either upset anybody or would make them think that I wasn't performing as well as I should. So I, you know, I was destined to go to a place like Penn from the time that I was in kindergarten because I was, you know, I had the opposite of Maggie, Maggie's experience in terms of learning. I have a very neurotypical brain for learning, very fast brain for learning. And my, the intelligences that are strong for me are the ones that the West celebrates, right? Linguistic and mathematical. So I kind of was the SAT girl. Right. <laughs> it's a very different experience from Mags. Um, but, <laughs> but had plenty of my own issues to, to deal with, uh, with anxiety. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I did. I ended up at the University of Pennsylvania, where Mags and I, are, where our worlds collided, thank goodness, because she saved my life. I think I saved hers. Yeah, I know. And I can't wait to dive into that story um, more. But I do have two questions for each. Well, one question for each of you. So that's two questions. Um, So I'm going to go with Maggie first. So who in your family or do you know of any other, you know, individual that is dyslexic? Oh, dyslexic? And has anxiety, you know? Well, my son definitely has, both my sons definitely have a degree of dyslexia. One of them probably more than the other, but both of them have dyslexia. But anxiety was, it was in the air in my house. 
you know, like, that's what I like to say. It's like you breathed in anxiety. Right. So, so did either of your parents have dyslexia or a grandparent or like an, well, I don't know. Like the grandparents were so much older and they didn't all go to, I don't think they all went to school probably for too long, you know, um, especially on my mom's side, my dad's side, definitely not, definitely were very academic. So I don't, I don't really know. My parents are both only children and they both lost a parent at a very young age. So it's like the whole family, that kind of stuff in the family. It's really hard to figure a lot of it out in terms of those things. Right. Which is interesting because we, I, you know, I have talked to other people on the show that they're like, no, I didn't know anyone else in my family that was dyslexic. And one thing that I think for my son is it's helpful that I understand the way he learns. My dad was dyslexic. My sister's dyslexic. So we we have a, a lot, and I'm sure there's a lot of grandparents, you know, not, I shouldn't say a lot. There's definitely, I, you know, my, I think it was my grandmother on my dad's side that there's, you know, thoughts that maybe she was dyslexic. So uh, there's an understanding level. And I think that's a lot of times when you learn different or you have anxiety or you have something that's different than society. If there's someone that understands you and that could say, hey, dude, I know that school's really hard. I'm really sorry. It was hard for me. And this is how I got through it. And these are the, some of the things that I did or just, yeah, I know that it really sucks when you have to take that math test. I remember it and I'm sweating for you because I hated it. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like that that's something that works well in a family. Yes. My mom, who was a terrific social worker, because I'd hear her on the phone and she worked in a school and I'd hear her with all these other people, (laughs) my brother and my brothers and I would hear her and we'd be like, who is that person? Because when she turned around to us and she, she was loving, but she pushed us really hard. And so it wasn't until many, many years later, I was in my thirties sitting at dinner with my mother and my husband. And my mother said, I used to feel so sorry for you when you had to take those math tests because you would just not be able to do it and cry and cry and cry. And, um, and I was like, but mom, you never let me like go down to a lower math level. Like you never said anything. And she's like, well, I figured I didn't want to like discourage you more. I didn't want to. And I was like, yeah, no, it was discouraging thinking, why can't I do this? Right. Which is understandable. Now, do either of your brothers or either of your brothers dyslexic or it was just you? It was just me. Yeah. And that's how my, my son is that my other two are not. So now I'm going to take it to Abby. Did anyone in your family that you know of have OCD anxiety? Anxiety, definitely. Um, you know, we were Jewish, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you are Jewish, you should I say. Am Jewish, um, um, no, except we say about my dad that he's a carrier. He doesn't have anxiety. He just gives everyone around him anxiety. Okay, right. We all know someone like that. He's type A. <laughs> type A to the to the hundredth degree, you know, if we can say he he, he has yeah, some he, traces. He, he's a perfectionist, and that's where I got that from for sure. But no, I, no one in my family has OCD. And yeah, so I went, and that's always fascinates me. Is like, okay, where it, was it something that was learned, you know, and then it just manifested into more, you know, because obviously you have the anxiety component and, and how those kind of things. But I'm not a doctor, but those kind of things fascinate me. Um, you know, just to think about where did that start and where, you know, how did that come about? I think that in my case, uh, my, my brain chose a way of coping with anxiety. I had severe anxiety and, and I couldn't talk about it. So my way of coping with it was to create these soothing compulsions because I totally was right. fine. Once I did my compulsion, I felt fine and I functioned really well. I excelled at sports. I excelled at music. I was a good student. In other words, I really experienced a lot of success. 
So I think that that reinforced the neural pathways. Right. And, and it really became a built-in thing for me that, oh, okay, when I'm anxious about something, I have a nice ritual and I still do to this day. I mean, I am, you know, my OCD is completely managed and I take medication for it, but um, I still have some compulsions that I allow myself to do because I know they're soothing and they're not going to hurt anybody. Right. And and so, you know, that's the interesting thing. And that's where, again, we're not going to get into that part of things, but it always fascinates me because as you said, you did them and then it was like, okay, that felt, that felt better. My anxiety has gone. So you, you self-soothe yourself, just like my son would bring a book home and say, mom, can you read that to me? He would, you know, figure out how to manage in life without kind of, you know, not knowing that everyone else is actually reading, you're memorizing, right? He didn't obviously know that. He was just like, oh, I don't know how to say those words. But when my mom reads it, I memorize it. Then I put it down. I can read it back to the teacher. So you were doing the same sort of thing, which is really fascinating when we think about the complexity of the human brain, right? And what it does and what is learned because it helps and how, you know, if a child is in a situation from a young age, whether it's good or bad, how that develop that, that child's brain to then, you know, take on these paths, as you said. I was going to say the more that the more time I spend doing research into brain and neuroscience, the more I've come to understand that there isn't any such thing as the neurotypical brain. Right. <laughs> really, really have come to believe that we all, we, our brains are so highly adaptive and so plastic, quote unquote, right? That's what they've learned in the last 20 years is that our brains change in structure and function all the way through our course of our life, even into our right. 90s. So knowing that, I don't think there's any two brains that work the same way. And I think that our brains are miraculous. They do incredible things. And so there's nothing typical about any of our brains right. or, any of our, you know, any of the things our brains can do. Yeah, which is just fascinating. So now we're, I want to go into, you guys met University of Pennsylvania in the 80s. Am I correct there? Yes. Late 80s. So because when did you graduate University of Pennsylvania? I, uh, Abby graduated 88. I graduated 89. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's very late 80s, right? Late 80s. Yes, that's late 80s. <laughs> late 80s. So take us through that a little bit, how you connected. Do you guys remember the first time that you, you know, saw each other and were like, wait, this is a good friend. And then I do. kind I of. I remember the first day I met you. Um, do you remember that in your dorm room? Abby was, was, um, was in her dorm. Uh, you know, we were, I, I think I was talking to to your sweet mate and Miriam. And then I met Abby through that, but we lived in a very, very close dorm where people really tended to know each other and got to know each other. We ate dinner in a separate kind of a separate dining hall. Yeah. We We were in a college living learning community kind of. So we all got to, a lot of people got to know each other really well. And so I knew Abby's sweet mate, but that's sort of how we first connected. And you know, we, and you were, and you were dating my good friend. Yeah. Well, I was trying to, yeah. You sort of set it up. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it's always fun to go back. I think to go back and remember these fun and good times. So, and, and, and Abby, we didn't say what, what you, cause I know Maggie, you, your major was philosophy. Abby, what was your major? Communication with a minor in psychology. That's right. I, I read that, but then I was like, wait, who's, who, who's, whose was it now that I, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Which is, again, that's, a, a you know, fascinating, the communications and psychology, you kind of were like, I want to learn more about this. And where did that take you both after you graduated? Where, you know, what field did you go into? If you can share that a little bit. I had always um, gravitated toward 
working with people, working in not-for-profits, you know, I was sort of like, I want to change the world, you know, type of uh, idealist. But I also was was so interested in mental health because um, I think it was a big, in certain ways for the time, it was a big conversation in my family. Uh, in other ways, it wasn't. It was kind of strange. But because my mom was a social worker, being in therapy wasn't foreign to me in any way. Um, and so I I worked in a number of different not-for-profits, sometimes doing research and sometimes working directly with uh, with different people, often kids or teens or sometimes elderly. So I, I worked with a lot of different different types of people, but then I, I went to social work school. Um, and that was just, that sort of fit in all my interests together. And I ended up being um, a high school counselor in a New York City high school for a lot of years. Interesting. Yeah, I love I love where, where things take you. And then Abby, where did you end up? I've always been fascinated with how talk works. I, I find language and communication fascinating. And the, the lore in my family is that I started talking in full sentences at nine months, nine months. old and I haven't stopped since. <laughs> and there is some truth to that, I think, although maybe not the nine month old part. Um, I've always, I mean, I majored in communication. I threw myself into communication research. I became a professor of communication, but I was not interested in the media end of it and the journalism end of it. I really was focused on interpersonal communication, conflict management, how we use our language to, to manage difficult situations. And so it was really a personal thing for me because I was trying to figure out in my own way, how I could navigate my anxiety, my mental health issues using language, because that was what came easiest to me. And that was what I enjoyed the most. So I really threw myself into the interpersonal communication world and ended up being a professor for 20 something years. I loved it. Right. And I, you know, I, what I love so much, I actually was just at a pod, um, a podcast convention and my topic was the, you know, the, about storytelling and podcasting. And when, when I started the, the speech, the talk, I, opened up with a story and it was a story about third grade and you know how I was went to special reading but from that day on I remember that when I spoke to my teachers when I spoke to adults they listened to me and they would stop and they would ask me questions but then when I had to do work when I had to write I had to do a test I was told I wasn't trying hard enough and that I wasn't focused and I needed to work harder and I you know I didn't give the the assignment what I do when I'm in class and that was where my storytelling, my communications became so apparent because people didn't realize I struggled as much as I did when I spoke to them. And so that's where I kind of really honed in on that part. So I love that that fascinated you because that is why I went into communications, not realizing until later in my life that I went into communications is because when I spoke, people stopped, they listened, you know, they, they treated me the same. They gave me positive affirmations, positive reinforcement. But when I was in the classroom and I had to write is when I got the negative stuff. So I think it's, it's really fascinating. And I love that you went into that because you were also kind of working on yourself. Like, how can I do this? And, you know, and then Maggie, you wanting to help, you know, well, I also, everyone who goes into social work or psychology or psychiatry, we all pretty much all of us are doing it too, because we've, we've experienced like these kind of challenges. And so, you know, we know what it feels like and we have some interest in, in this field and in, and into learning more about it. No, totally. Which is, you know, which is awesome though. I mean, it really is. It's, it's especially when you can do something with it. So when did you guys 
realize, okay, our anxiety has really gotten the best out of us separately and then together. And then when did the anxiety sisters really form and, and then take us what you guys are, you know, what you're doing now. Cause I know you're on the road, you have podcasts, you have books, I mean, blogs, you guys are really doing that. And I think it's so important because it is nowadays it is talked about more, but you guys have been doing this, you know, for a long time to really be at the forefront of helping this movement of like, we need to talk about this. So when we graduated from college, I would say both of us, you know, and started our adult lives, I think me first, and then a little bit later, Abby, we started to both realize that our anxiety was starting to really rule the worst, like that we were making our decisions based on what our anxiety was telling us was okay to do or who it was okay to see, or, you know, there were opportunities we wouldn't take because of the anxiety. There was just, and um, each in our different ways, it started to become more and more intrusive in our lives. And I, and Abby and I always like to call our twenties, I would say the decade of the is where, you know, we knew something was wrong. We would go to try to find out what it was. So we'd go to the nutritionist, the cardiologist, the acupuncturist, the past life regressionist, the hypnotist, hypnotist, you know, gastroenterologist, whoever was an ist who would take some money from us, we were there. And and many of those people had very good things to say and were very helpful. So I don't want to um, put it all down, but we really did spend a lot of time and money sort of running around trying to find an answer because we still didn't really have that vocabulary for anxiety. And so, you know, it, it was a, a trial and error, but what we kept finding and what I think we responded to in college too, was that the more we talked to each other and shared our stories with each other, we could be each other's touchstone. Um, and that, that was really some of the most helpful and healing things to know, oh, I'm not alone in this. Someone else gets it. Right. I love that. And I do want to pause for a second because I would love for you guys, because I know there's so many people that are like, okay, wait, do I have anxiety? I know even talking to like my kids, I'll say to my son, that's test anxiety. He's like, that's not test anxiety, mom. I'm just, I'm anxious. And I'm like, yeah, that's anxiety. Like you, you might not have a big level of it because it's not stopping you, but you have, you're like worried, you have butterflies, you're a little nervous. Um, but there's levels of it. And so there, and there's different definitions of it. Can you guys both share what the, your definition of anxiety is? And then, you know, Abby, I would love for you to continue where Maggie left off. Well, okay. So anxiety is a human emotion, right? It's, and so if you're a human being, you've experienced anxiety. Everybody knows what anxiety is on some level. Like you said to your son, it could be butterflies in the stomach. It could be worrying about a future event. It could be you're upset to your stomach because you're so anxious. It can come out in many, many ways. It could be cardiac. However, it comes out. We've all experienced anxiety. What makes it something that needs to be paid attention to is when the anxiety, as Maggie said, starts to make your decisions for you. It starts to shrink your world, right? So for instance, in my case, there got to be a point where I was so concerned about having a heart attack. That was what I was focused on, my anxiety, that I would not leave my house because I was hooked up to my computer to an EKG. So I could watch my heartbeat. Right. It got to the point where I couldn't imagine leaving my house. I couldn't go visit right. anybody. I couldn't go to work because... I couldn't leave my computer, you know, and I had to be paying attention to my heart rate. So that type of anxiety 
is obviously it rules the roost. It makes all my decisions. So it shrunk my world. And right. So Mags and I think that when your anxiety is doing that, when your anxiety is starting to make your decisions for you, whether that means that you won't leave your house or that you just don't want to go to a particular party or whatever it is, that's when it needs to be attended to. And it is treatable. Right. And you know, it's so interesting because I think back and again, bringing it back to children. So one of my, my, my kids, when they were little, would always be hesitant to do like an activity. And I remember as a parent, I would be like, what? You got this. And from the outside, someone would say I was being too pushy, but it is what he needed. And he actually, to this day, will be like, I mean, I say to him, I'm like, I could have made you kind of an insane person if I fed into that. But I would say to him, okay, I'm going to count to five and then we're going to leave and you're going to miss out on the, you know, on the party or the sports event or, you know, hanging out with, you know, that group of kids in the park. And I remember or, or surfing or doing something. And now I know it was because he was unsure he was going to understand and he didn't want to look silly. He didn't know if he was, and this is my dyslexic son, if he was going to understand what the instructions were. So he was very hesitant to do that. So like he didn't do sports until he was probably five or six years old. And people always are so, or probably even seven, surprised at that because he's so athletic. And I didn't realize, oh, this is an anxiety that, you know, I'm like, I just naturally was like, honey, I have all the faith in you. You can do this. Just go do it, you know? And so I gave him that kind of, that confidence to do it. But it was just a natural thing because I saw, okay, he's a little wearisome. We're just going to push him. So as a parent, you know, parents that are listening to this, if your child is, it's also important to know your child because I also could have harmed him, right? I mean, he could have not been successful and been hurt and then been, you know, insecure for the rest of his life because it was like, my mom said I could do it. And like, you know, I mean, those kind of situations. I just knew him. I knew his physical abilities. He was always athletic. He walked at like, you know, nine months, like basically ran, always was able to do things. So I knew it was something more that was holding him back innately. So I think it's important also for us to know ourselves, to know if, if again, if we're a parent raising a child that seems that they're a little anxious. And that is where, again, I'm not tooting my own horn. I just innately was able to do it. But if you're confused or not, go seek professional help. There's no, nothing wrong with asking someone, hey, my child seems a little this. Doesn't mean your child needs therapy right now, but you might need direction into how to you know handle those situations. So as you said, Abby, your anxiety started taking over your life. You were hooked up to your, and that's probably your OCD also was playing a big factor. It was like, oh my God, I need to see this. I need to see this. And then it was the spiral where you couldn't get out from, out of your own way. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing with that. Cause I know it's, I mean, I know you guys talk about this, but it's not always fun to like go back to those, those situations where it's like, okay, yeah, this is where, you know, this is where it all kind of started. It's hard stuff, but by the same token, the more I share it, the more people contact me and say, thank you, because I thought I was the only one. Right which is so important. That's why storytelling is so important. That's why I love having a platform, my podcast, where I can have people on like you guys to share your stories. Because again, stories connect us, stories teach us, and stories also help educate us and move us forward. So thank you. And so Maggie, can you share with us when you realized, okay, you know, this is a little bit too much. I know you started, you, you, you started to do that as well, or yours was a little bit before. I was a little bit earlier than Abby, but not 
But um, I, as I got into my 20s, when my, my father passed away and about six months after that, which is a very common, like about six to 18 months after something like that happens is very common for anxiety to get even worse um, because anxiety is really part of the grief experience. Like it is really a major part of the grief experience. And I was living in New York City. Um, I always had loved to travel and, you know, do things, but I got to the point where I couldn't leave my apartment. Basically I was, uh, and that was mainly because of my phobias. I had a phobia of the elevator. I lived on the 16th floor. I had a phobia of the subway. You know, I had to ride the subway every day. I had a, a major phobia about any kind of driving, being in a car, driving, particularly driving in the rain. We have some funny stories about that. Abby's wedding day where um, it was the only time in our entire life where she actually cursed at me because I was start. It was just a little tiny bit of rain and I it was like just sprinkles and I started to freak out. And of course, she was freaking out because it was her wedding day. And um, <laughs> she was like, be quiet or get the F out of this car. I, I've never heard her curse at me, bef- you know, before or since. <laughs> right. right. I was quiet. I was quiet. Uh, I was going to say, what happened? Did you get out of the car? Oh, no, no, did you, did you shut the fuck up? I did. I did. <laughs> and, um, but I, you know, I really had gotten to the point where, you know, I, I call it the U-turns. We call it the U-turns where I started to go somewhere and I, and I couldn't, I could not go. And, and I would turn around, you know, I lost friends that way. I, you know, definitely my career, um, I took on a much lesser job because I knew I couldn't always get there. Um, I was really, the phobias, the panic attacks were horrendous. Um, I didn't want to travel. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do anything, but I, I wanted to do things, but I felt like compelled to stay in my apartment. So I was really at a pretty severe point with panic and phobias. Which is, and and I mean, you guys might know this or might not, but why do you think it, and, and, and I know obviously you're, when your father passed, but do you think that that was the main thing, why it escalated? Or do you think that there was other factors that were kind of having it brew there? And that was what the last straw to kind of push over? Well, I, I was definitely, you know, I definitely was an anxious, I, I definitely was always having anxiety, but we do find like when there's a trauma of some type or a, a very big loss, um, anxiety really, really can kick in, in a, um, in a very intense way. So things like phobias or agoraphobia really often start after a big trauma. Right. Which is interesting. Cause I also, it makes me want to think, so do you think for, and you, again, you might not know this if someone, because someone could be listening and saying, well, I've never, I don't really have anxiety. Right. But they have a trauma and they're experiencing anxiety, but they don't realize that that's what it is. They don't realize it's anxiety because of the trauma. Yes. That happens very, very often, very often. And, you know, psychologists miss miss this and therapists and doctors that anxiety is very much a part of the grief picture. You know, um, we're friends with Claire Bidwell-Smith who writes, um, anxiety is the missing stage of grief. And, you know, we felt that for a really long time. And grief can be grief of losing someone or or different types of grief. You know, there's lots of different types of grief and trauma can bring grief too. 
So, yeah. And people do not always spot it. This is why I love being able to have these stories shared because again, there's going to be so many people that are like, wait a second, I guess that is happening to me. And I didn't realize that that was happening to me. And, um, and so for you guys to be bringing that out to the open and sharing it and saying, yes, this, this is actually something that can happen. Be aware of it. Cause I think again, communication connection, but then education, when you're aware of it, it solves so many problems. It helps. So like if, if, you know, someone knows, okay, I just had a loss. That's what I'm experiencing. It is normal. It kind of normalizes it. And, and then they can seek help in the correct way and explain it in the correct way. And that's what it's so important that you guys are sharing these stories because I didn't really think of that, you know, and I have to say I had, for any of my dog lovers out there know that I'm very close with my boxers and we had my boxer died suddenly this past summer. And I've had a terror, like, I mean, terrible, but it was like very strange for me because I was like, okay, I've had other boxers that I've, you know, loved as well pass, but it was always, they were sick and it was their time. He really died suddenly. And, um, I had a terrible time getting over it and just, and now I look back and I'm like, okay, I knew I, I I knew I was mourning and suffering. I mean, I knew that like, you know, I wasn't able to work out. I wasn't able to do a bunch of things that I was normally able to do. And I was like, this is so bizarre to me. I'm just really grieving over the loss of Doyle. But now that you just brought that to the forefront, it's like, you know what? I did have a lot of anxiety and I think I didn't put a name to that. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's often the case with anxiety. It's, you know, anxiety is a bunch of different symptoms and we often have trouble putting a name to what those symptoms are. Yeah. So Abby, so I want to take it to you now to share a little bit about, you know, your situation when you started, you know, the OCD with the heart and stuff. What do you think triggered that? If you, if you can share with us. Um, I, you know, I think, since I was a little kid, I was prone to compulsions and rituals to soothe myself. I just think that I had that disorder and have always had it. And that's just part of who I am and what, what's how my brain works. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot about it that, that stinks and has been very difficult in my life and presented lots of challenges. I'm definitely, I'm a germ phobe. So, you know, one of the discomforts in my life is that, um, I won't go to the bathroom on a plane which presents a particular challenge when you're flying from say Europe to the United States. (laughs) I just did that that recently and held it in the hallway. So you gotta wear, you gotta wear depends. Yeah. I was, you know, I was this close to doing that. I would not let her, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, I have to say that some of my obsessions have been superpowers. I mean, a lot of my competence comes from my obsessive, my obsession with detail. Right. And my organizational skills and, the, and, and, and it's an obsessive organizational ability. It's not like, a, you know, I'm just an organized person. I'm very, you know, ritualized about it. And that's been a superpower in my life. It's been a superpower in, in lots of ways. So, uh, and I think also my obsessive personality has given me a really fun sense of humor. <laughs> and, and so, you know, by the same, I, I definitely have been struggling, but I also am seeing the gifts Right. I love that. I think there's meaning in, you know, and I didn't come to this until I was in my fifties. Right. You know, until I was 50, my attitude was sort of like, oh, this sucks. And why is this happening to me? And I think that a lot of us tend to, to do that when we're younger and we're more focused on ourselves. But as I became more focused on people outside of me, growing our community, you know, working to make other people's lives better, I became really aware that, you know, struggling is a human thing. 
and how we manage our struggles, that's where the meaning and fulfillment in life is, even when it's hard. It's sort of, it's, it's the mountains that we climb. Right. That, that they make our lives richer, even when they're terrible. And, and I've climbed some awful mountains, you know, figuratively, but you know, Mags and I really, when we were struggling the most with our anxiety in our twenties uh, and early thirties, we looked for a community to let us know we weren't alone and we could not find it. We were a sorority of two and our relationship with each other, the ability to share all of our obsessions, anxieties, phobias, terrible thoughts, catastrophes, everything that we were doing, we knew that no matter what we said, the other one would never judge it. Never. I've never felt one second's judgment from Maggie in our 35 year friendship ever. Yeah, and which is that special. Is that is really a gift. And so when Maggie and I created the Anxiety Sisters, we wanted to create a place where people could find other Maggies and Abbies. We wanted people to have access to others who wouldn't judge them, who wouldn't make them feel shame, and who would instead say, yeah, I did something just like that. Or, oh my God, I felt that way too. Or, oh, that's nothing. Wait, do you hear what I did in my parenting decisions this week? You know, I mean, it's really that, that sense of, of no judgment. And, and that's why we wanted to create a community like ours. And I mean, now it's over almost a quarter of a million people. So it's a big sorority now, but it's, it's a gift to be part of other people's struggles and helping them manage their struggles. And it makes our struggles feel number one, very worth it. (laughs) And, And number two, it really gives our lives a lot of meaning. To, and that's why we don't mind sharing it, even though sometimes I, I, I heard myself on TV or podcast sharing some of these stories. I thought, oh my God, do I sound like a wacko? <laughs> no, but there's so many people out that can relate. And so that's what's beautiful. So yeah, tell us a little bit about what you, I know there's a podcast, there's books. What started first and then how did it evolve into all the other facets? I know you guys speak and do all these different things. And I'm going to ask a twofold question if you remember the second part. And what is one of your favorite parts of this growing, you know, community, um, that you guys have created. I think in 2010, it was January of 2010. We had this very fateful bus ride and I'll share with you. I'll I'll do the fast version. Um, but basically Mags and I were on a bus from New Jersey to Manhattan and we were talking pretty loudly about the side effects of our antidepressants. And, you know, we are the anxiety sisters, so we tend to talk loudly about things other people wouldn't. But within a few minutes, the woman in the seat in front of us had turned around and said, you know, I couldn't help but overhear what you're saying. I'm on that medicine too. And I have that same side effect. What do you do about it? Before long, I mean, literally within 20 minutes, almost every woman on the bus had turned around and was participating wholeheartedly in this really intimate conversation about communications, anxiety, sexual side effects. I mean, really intimate things. So we get off the bus and we're walking down ninth Avenue and I turned to Mags and I said, can you believe how willing people were to share that kind of intimacy with total strangers? And she said, yeah, I can believe it because anxiety is so lonely. It's so lonely and isolating and people, they just want that connection. And then she paused and she sort of shouted, we're anxiety sisters. I love that. And that's really where it was born was on the streets of Manhattan in 2010. And at that point we decided, okay, we're going to write the book that we needed. 
when we were starting our anxiety journeys. We, we want to find, we want to put a book out there that is not prescriptive, not one size fits all, has a sense of humor and is written from the perspective of the sufferer. And that's where it all began. We didn't actually, you know, create the group anxiety sisters, the virtual community until 2017, but literally starting in 2010, we began this journey of Inter thousands of interviews with all kinds of anxiety sufferers all over the world, neuroscientists, psychiatrists, doctors, specialists, nutritionists, Morris, right? <laughs> and we just talked <laughs> to everyone. We, you know, I started taking neuroscience courses and we became um, very committed to knowing everything there was to know about mental health, anxiety, and depression that we could. And, and it was, it was really, a, you know, about an 11 year journey between that day on the bus and when our book came out, but that's kind of the genesis of the anxiety sisterhood. Right. And, and that's also, I think when anyone is on, and we, I talk about this often on the podcast, I believe in God, but whether you believe in, you know, God or the universe, we are put on this earth for a reason. Not all of us find that reason. A lot of times I think it's because we don't explore. We don't let ourselves daydream. We don't let ourselves have that open outlet where it's like, okay, my experience can help someone how, and you know, a lot of times people are fearful, so they don't jump into something. And so a lot of people miss what they're meant to do, but this is clearly what God wanted you guys to do. And so as you continued in your path as that, you know, Mag's yelling and I could totally picture that. So thank you. I mean, I got choked up for a second where the anxiety sisters, you can see that's like a, that's like a movie. You can see where that can then evolve and where then it's like, okay, let's put the steps to see where this goes. And then that's where it just grew because God was like, yes, you guys, this is why I gave this to you. I gave as much as it sucks. I gave you guys the voice, the experience, the balls to be able to go out there and yell from the rooftops. This is what we went through and this is how we're going to help. And we want this community. So thank you for what you guys are doing because it's really important. And anyone that's listening to this can hear you guys are relatable. You make it fun. You know, there was a couple of times where I started to laugh and then I was like, wait, that's not actually funny, but no, it's no, funny like, because we like laughter. We definitely like <laughs> laughter. We, we laugh at everything. <laughs> right. Which, I mean, you have to, I believe, you know, laughter is what makes the world go around. You have to laugh every day, you know, or what's life about. So, uh, you know, I just think it's amazing. So tell us what's next for you guys, um, again, and also share a little bit about what, what, when you think of everything that you've created out of the anxiety sisters, what are you looking forward to the most as it grows? Well, we're about, we're about ready. I don't know if we should even be saying this, but we're about ready to start our second book. So yeah, we're getting together in a week or so to to get out our drawing board and our markers and start brainstorming and and get to work. So hopefully that's that'll be something we'll be doing for the next you know six months to a year. Um, we have dreams of one day having a foundation, Anxiety Sisters Foundation, that would be amazing, where we could really maybe affect things on a policy level, take a lot of our knowledge, and and also uh, be able to help people, you know, who, who don't have access to mental health care. Um, so that's something that we talk about as, as the dream. Uh, we still love, I mean, we just did one last night. We love connecting with our people, did a, a webinar last night, helped some people who are struggling. We love to coach other anxiety sufferers. We do workshops and presentations and just basically anyone who will talk to us about anxiety, we're happy to talk. Right. To we, we would love to get, I would say in the next year to get out more because of the pandemic, even promoting our book and doing workshops have, have mainly been online. And that is great because you can't be everywhere, but 
you know, there is something to connecting to people like in the same space that I think is really meaningful and important to both of us. And so I think that for both of us, when we have someone who says, you know, I thought I was the only one dealing with this or what do I do? (laughs) You know, how do I manage this? Because I'm totally overwhelmed and we can spend some time with them. And our community is so supportive of each other. Like on Facebook, we have a particularly strong community, but even in these webinars or seminars we do, like last night, someone came forward and asked a question that they were something they were struggling with. And like in the comments, all these other people gave great, wonderful ideas and, and mainly were incredibly compassionate to this person who was beating up on themselves, on herself. And so that I think is the, the best thing for both of us is, is just bringing this into the light, as you say. Yeah. And we love our podcast. And so we're, 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 we started out as a monthly podcast and now we're by month, we're twice a month. And now we're actually having plans to maybe possibly go weekly in the fall. We're going to see, I mean, we have to figure out our time budget, but, um, but we really, we've been connecting with great people on our podcast and it's been we love it. And we do something called the BFF cast every, every few podcasts, it's just me and mags. And we talk about a topic that keeps coming up in the sisterhood. So we figure, all right, that's in the zeitgeist right now. Let's talk about it. Let's get to the bottom of it. And, and we do that. So, uh, we look forward to that. So ladies, I'm so honored to have you guys on your next stop. I mean, it really is such a special thing that you're doing. As I said, it is so needed because people, for so many years, it's taboo. You don't talk about mental health. And the fact that you've been doing this for as long as you have, I truly believe that you guys have been pioneers in this space, that you've been doing your ways to kind of get the message out to others. And so thank you from all of people, whether you suffer from a little bit of anxiety, big anxiety, whether you're dyslexic, ADHD, have OCD, whatever it is, we can all come together and share our own stories and help because we know that we're not alone. So Maggie and Abby, thank you so much again, uh, the Anxiety Sisters, for joining your next stop. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. And I love seeing your like bright, shiny, smiley face, you know, <laughs> like you just thank exude you. joy and happiness. Thank you. I so appreciate it. You guys, you know what I say every episode? like, share, rate, and review. But not only that, someone needs to hear this. You might be saying that this is not uh, something that's affecting you. Anxiety doesn't affect you. You don't have any disorders. But how do you know that your neighbor, your sister, your mother, your father, someone in your life needs to hear this? So you're going to take this episode right now and you're going to share it with as many people as you can so they can get the connection that they need in a community that is talking freely about anxiety and other things. So once again, thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Abby. And next week, you guys stay tuned for another wonderful episode of Your Next Stop. I hope you liked this episode of Your Next Stop. Please subscribe to my channel, share with your friends and join in each week. 